Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse podcast live stream. Apologies to those who were watching live earlier. We had some technical issues. We believe they are fixed. So without further ado, we are going to get on with live stream 150, not prime, multiple different ways. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying, and uh, we've got uh, quite a a set of things to talk to you about. Yeah, uh, there are some indications that it's the end of everything. As we know it. As we know it, and a lot of us don't feel fine. No, not not perfectly fine. Not at all. So unfortunately, after technical problems last week prevented us from doing a QA, and a the technical problems this week have pushed us so far back that we're not going to be able to do one this week either. We are going to actually do four different streams next week. So uh, we are going to have a live stream in the normal time, number 151. We're going to follow up with a Q&A, which will have potentially triple the number of questions. We never get to all the questions, but we will get to as many as possible, beginning, as always, with questions that have been voted on from the Discord server that week. On Sunday of next week, this is again the Saturday after Thanksgiving and the Sunday after Thanksgiving, uh, we are going to do a live stream, a special uh, holiday gift uh, edition at 9.45 a.m. Pacific on the Sunday after American Thanksgiving for just an hour talking about some of the products uh, that, that we like without any sponsors. Um, and then we're going to follow that with our private Q&A that's only for uh, patrons at my Patreon, for which the question asking period is open right now. So if you're interested in being part of that Q&A, go over to my Patreon and join it. And if you're interested in asking questions on it, that again, that question asking period is open right now. We really have a lot of fun with those. They are uh, small enough that we're able to watch the chat, interact with the chat, pick up some questions from the chat, and and they're they're great. So we've got what we think. We're going to cover some important stuff here today, but we're just going to do the one stream, and next week you get as much of us as you can handle, probably more of us than even we can handle. But it's four basically, different streams. it's an entire watershed of streams. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Sort of. It'll be a, Close a enough. series of... Stream moments, watershed. Yeah, some, I don't even know how to do it. I can't, yeah. I don't know. Something yeah. extreme, yeah. don't know. But it's mm. going to happen. Yeah. Four different streams, if that's what you're looking for. Exactly. Um, we are on YouTube and Odyssey. The chat is live on Odyssey right now. And, of course, we will be, uh, you know, you, you can be watching it or uh, or listening to it just about anywhere that you might watch or listen to such things. In Natural Selections this week, my... Uh, Substack. I wrote about Portland, Oregon, the city that we called home for four years, that we moved away from two months ago, and that I visited again last week. Last week? Two weeks ago. A week and a half ago. Uh, I was there for the election and wrote about some of what I saw there. I called it a love story, a love letter, and an intervention. Uh, so I encourage you to go there. Uh, also, we have, as we've mentioned the last few weeks, uh, a fantastic new store. Uh, we are working now with a couple uh, out of the middle of the United States, who both run the store and are also uh, and also have the print shop. So all of the work that is coming, all of the products that are coming out of our new store, which is at darkhorsestore.org, is being printed uh, on site by them. Do you have something to show us here, Zach? Yes. Uh, give me just a second. Cool. So we have uh, nothing new this week, but we've got a couple of new products in the last couple of weeks. We have the Do Not Affirm, Do Not Comply merchandise, and also we have this Lie to a Tyrant, uh, where you've got uh, some people appearing to acquiesce to a tyrant, but doing everything they can to actually not not comply. And this is this is necessary in these times. So we've got this wonderful artwork 
on a hoodie, on a shirt or two, and we encourage you to go there to darkhorsestore.org if you are interested in such things. We are, of course, supported by our audience. Uh, we are not supported by YouTube, even though they put ads on our stuff, they demonetized us. So any money that they are making from, uh, from us, we are not getting any of that. We, of course, have Patreons, which we encourage you to join. And we also have a Discord, which is available at our Patreons, which has a wonderful community associated with it. They have honest and on honest and conversations. That's not a thing. Yes, no. No. They, they have honest conversations about difficult topics. They have book clubs. They have karaoke. They have virtual happy hours. Uh, and it, it's, it's pretty great. And they have happy virtual hours. I'm pretty sure. Right? Well, I think there are no, they're real the happiness hours. happiness is real. But the hours are also real. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's the, it's the happy hour that's virtual. It's not the happy or the hour that's virtual. It's the happy hour, which is some emergent property involving drinks. That are lower priced and certain food On account items. of them being virtual. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they should be extremely economical at that level. Yes, I would think. Anyway, that happens on the Discord. And yeah, I don't know if they've had that discussion. Probably they're above that sort of thing. <laughs> All you can virtually drink. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and we also have sponsors. Uh, and this is, we, we really do appreciate our sponsors. And we only take, we only run ads for sponsors uh, who have products or services that we actually can vouch for either personally or have someone very close to us who can do so. Uh, so uh, as, as usual, we have three. And let's go ahead and get those going. And you, Brett, are first this week. With first Thesis. up. Uh, our first sponsor this week is Thesis. Thesis makes nootropics. Nootropics are nutri uh, nutrients found in nature or in the human body that enhance mental performance in areas such as motivation, creativity, mood, memory, and cognitive processing. They work best when combined uh, with taking care of yourself generally, which includes eating real food, moving your body often, and getting good sleep. You're probably already using a nootropic, as one of the most commonly consumed nootropics is caffeine, but it is by far the least exciting. Effective nootropics allow people to optimize their focus, energy, and mood based on the demands of the day. For some people, nootropics can replace the pharmaceuticals that are often used to tackle problems like ADHD. Thesis is unusual in the nootropic market in taking a very personalized approach. They do not assume that what works for your brother will work for you, or that what worked for you when you were under a deadline uh, for a dreadful project will be the same thing that will work for you when a spark of creativity is necessary for a project you've been dreaming of for years. Just as some people become alert after a cup of coffee and others can fall asleep, so too all nootropics have different effects on different people. When Thesis first started out, they blinded their customers to what blend they were taking and took careful data on how everyone responded to the various blends. Not surprisingly, different people responded differently to different Thesis blends. Now more than 2,500 customers and millions of data points later, Thesis has created a recommendation algorithm to predict which blends of nootropic will work best for any given customer. The process is simple. Go to their website, take a short quiz, and they'll send you a starter kit with four different blend recommendations to try over the course of a month. We've tried several blends now. Um, uh, we have not liked all of them, but have found several very intriguing. Creativity blends smooth things out a bit and adds a little clarity. The logic blend facilitates focus, and your results may vary. With fully personalized blends, there's likely to be a thesis that is right for you. 
To get your own customized thesis starter kit, go online to takethesis.com slash darkhorse. Take the quiz and use the code darkhorse at checkout for 10% off your first box. Our second sponsor this week is Moink. That's Moo plus Oink, M-O-I-N-K. An eighth generation farmer founded Moink and is working hard to help save the farm, family farm and get its customers access to the highest quality meat on earth. Did you know that 97% of the chickens served in the U.S. are dipped in chlorine? Well, family farms don't tend to do that, and certainly the meat that you get from Moink doesn't do that. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon right to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did. And as a result, Moink Moink meat tastes like it should, which is to say delicious. Unlike the supermarket, Moink gives you total control over the quality and source of your food. You choose the meat delivered in every box, like ribeyes, chicken breasts, pork chops, salmon fillets, and more, and you can cancel anytime. We love everything about Moink. The fact that the meat is grass-fed and finished on small farms, the lovely publications that come along with it, <clears throat> excuse me, and of course the meat itself. Right now in our refrigerator, we have Moink bacon and ground pork and a turkey. Our Thanksgiving is going to be delicious, in large part due to Moink. Shark Tank hoist, oh man, hoist, I've got the oi sound now for Moink. (laughs) Uh, Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted, and I agree, it is really fantastic. And actually, we had some bacon kale pasta last night made with Moink bacon as well. Really fabulous. Keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash darkhorse right now, and listeners of this show will receive free filet mignon for a year. That's one of the best filet. That's one year of the best filet mignon you'll ever taste, but for only a limited time. Spelled M O I N K box dot com slash darkhorse. That's moinkbox dot com slash darkhorse. And our final sponsor this week is Ned, a CBD company that stands out in a highly saturated CBD market. I'm having a hard time reading from my screen. So, despite what our son would prefer, I'm going to read from the paper. I'm going to do it this way, though. Hide it. Okay. Uh, Ned was started by two friends who discovered that their hypermodern lives were leaving, from feeling, leaving them feeling empty, bewildered, and disconnected. Something about this way of life, they say on their website, just wasn't working. So they started Ned. You can buy CBD products in nearly every coffee shop or grocery store, but Ned's blends stand out. I'm particularly fond of their de-stress blend. Ned's de-stress blend is a one-to-one formula of CBD and CBG made from the world's purest full-spectrum hemp and also features a botanical infusion of ashwagandha, cardamom, and cinnamon. CBG is a botanical, nope, I just can't read today, that's the problem. CBG is known as the mother of all cannabinoids because of how effective it is at combating anxiety and stress by inhibiting the reuptake of GABA, the neurotransmitter responsible for stress regulation. This combination leaves me, at least, feeling a bit easier with whatever comes my way. Many of the CBD companies out there source their hemp from industrial farms in China. Just like with low-quality alcohol, however, low-quality CBD can have undesired effects. Ned is USDA-certified organic. All of Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA-certified organic hemp plants grown by an independent farmer named Jonathan in Peonia, Colorado. Also, Ned shares third-party lab reports and information about who farms their products and their extraction process on their site. These products are science-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. They are chock-full of premium CBD and a full spectrum of active cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, and trichomes. Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil nourishes the body's endocannabinoid system to offer functional support for stress, sleep, inflammation, and balance. If you'd like to give Ned a try, a Dark Horse... Dark Horse... Dark Horse... One Dark Horse listener only. 
all Dark Horse listeners get 15% off Ned products with code Dark Horse. Visit helloned.com slash Dark Horse to get access. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D dot com slash Dark Horse to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. That is our sponsors for the week. Man, the dyslexia is contagious in here. Good today. Lord, yeah, that was that's that's unlike me, but there we yeah, go. Yeah, that is very unlike you. We did it. It's very like me. Uh, and yet you didn't uh, do it. You just I did it right off. Oh, no, you did? You did I it did. too? Yeah. Oh. I covered. I'm glad I'm glad it didn't show. Yeah, you well, you know how to cover. I don't I don't <laughs> I guess I do when it comes to reading out loud, which used to be one of my greatest fears in life. When, when in class they would come around and everybody would read you know, a paragraph, I used to not hear anything anybody else said because I had to figure out, count ahead to which paragraph I was going to have to read. And then I had to read it three or four times in order that I would not embarrass myself. And you're not alone. Like I, I didn't have that problem. I, I always enjoyed reading until now. <laughs> <laughs> until today. <laughs> until today. And, uh, and I didn't relish it because I didn't like being on the stage. I didn't like having the camera faced at me. But, um, but I enjoyed the reading part. But certainly when we were professors, I saw how many students really dreaded this. And you having told me that story, I could tell which of them were doing it and would, would tend to give them a pass so long as they could do something else that demonstrated you know, participation, interaction, all of this. And watching so many other professors really just say, nope, this is, you know, this is the thing you have to do. This is what you have to do. Uh, when already the professors themselves have chosen the kinds of tasks that work for them and the ones that don't work for them, they aren't having the students do. And so it presumes that you want a classroom, that you are creating a classroom that is entirely like you, which of course is not in line with what we actually hope for for humanity or with what the, you know, the new you know, woke ideology would have us believe educators want either. Yeah, and it doesn't work very well in part because just by nature of, of selection, professors tend to be people who were good students themselves. And yep. so to the extent that the things that make some students not so great don't look like the things that make students great, having all the professors select the same kinds of activities because it seems natural to them is just a disaster. Indeed. Um, I got to tell you, I, I have now, I had forgotten this, but the worst thing is when you miscount Right? Oh, no. You miscount the number of people ahead and you read the wrong paragraph three times and then you suddenly discover, oh no, the person ahead of me is reading the paragraph I thought I was going to have to read. You're reading a whole new paragraph. You're thrown by the thing. It's uh, So did the anxiety make you enumerate or... Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, remember. I guess if you're not in a circle, if, if it's yeah. rows and tough, it can be tough. Yeah. It, it can be yeah. it can be tough, or somebody gets up and goes to the bathroom, or I don't remember exactly what causes that sure. you to be one off, but it did happen more than once, and uh, I still I still feel that, that trauma a little <laughs> I can bit. Tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, man, did some things happen this week? Really? Yeah. So we're gonna you're gonna you're gonna start us off, and we're gonna we're gonna talk for a while about. Uh, some of the bigger issues and the interconnections between them and much of what we've been talking about for, you know, for two and a half years now, really. Uh, but we are, I do hope to end with at least a little bit on the research that I was going to talk about last week about cats, domestic cats and their perception, yay or nay, of human language. Mm. Well, I'm really excited about this. I still have not encountered this research, so I still don't know what's coming. Um, that's going to be awesome. But yeah, all right. So let's um, let's talk about a little of what has emerged. And I believe when we uh, when we 
did our podcast last week, the FTX scandal had already broken, but mm-hmm. it was still very rapidly developing, and so we didn't... You, in fact, mentioned that you wanted to talk about it on air, and we didn't get to it, and it, it all seemed kind of like, what, 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 what is happening? Yeah, what is it? And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of what is it still going on, sure. and in fact, that's part of the motivation for what I had planned for us to do. Um, so the way it's going to work is this. I want to draw a kind of picture. I want to connect some dots that I think deserve to be connected and basically advance a model for where we are and what these things have to do with each other. And I'm not saying that this model is true. And undoubtedly, there are places where it will be wrong or at least imprecise. Mm -hmm. But the question is, is the overall model more predictive of events going forward than viewing all of the pieces in isolation? Right. That, you know, in some sense, a number of things which we won't talk about this week, maybe we will get back to them next week, have me considering the question of how it is that most people go about thinking and reaching conclusions. And there are a lot of cases in which I'm watching people um, that I care about or have cared about who have reached what I consider to be uh, utterly absurd conclusions about things. And anyway, thinking about how that happens is. Uh, is fascinating. So in any case, one key thing is... And that is increasingly one of the, one of the themes um, that we talk about here is, you know, how, both how did people end up in such different places and how do we reconcile with them? There is that. Yeah. And there is also the question, which I think is in some sense not, it's not a native question to us because the answer is something that has emerged in, in everything we've done. But the question of, well, how are you going to figure out what's true in a chaotic environment in which the facts themselves are being uh, hotly debated and are not agreed upon, yeah. where the authorities themselves um, are alleged to be compromised, for example, how are you to figure out what's going on? Well, one thing that is certainly true is if somebody's got a model that's predictive, then that's a decent model. And if it's more predictive than some other model, I don't care what credentials went into that other model or you know which three-letter agency is backing it and whether, in theory, we should be trusting those authorities. The answer is if it's not predictive, it's not predictive. And so anyway, the point is we're going to talk about a model. If it's not predictive, it's not predictive. But as you and we have also talked about here before, if you have no history of making uh, predictions that are borne out by what what turns out to unfold, uh, then you also shouldn't be someone who, in whom people are putting a lot of their trust. Right, right. W- what you do when your predictions are right, what you do what, when they're wrong, mm-hmm. what happens to your model as new information arises, these things are all critical. And so anyway, maybe uh, next week we can talk a little bit about some of the lessons of the present, which I think are uh, instructive and um, kind of profound. But for today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a model that connects up certain things that, you know, in some sense, if you look at if you look at the news, and I don't even know what that means anymore. I don't know where it is that we're supposed to go to find out what the news is. Elon is making the argument that Twitter, in fact, is a better source. And, you know, what kind of source is it even? It's, a, you know, it's like a, an endless room full of people talking about things. And you can listen in. And, of course, most of what's said in any crowded room is probably of no consequence at best. Um, but 
But one of the things, one of the ways that Twitter differs from any of the mainstream media is that you get all the biases in one place. That you, you can receive, you, you can not only get some, some piece that's been written by someone with some slant, but you can also get takes on it from the left, from the right, from all over the place. But you can also get all the pieces that are written on some particular topic. Someone somewhere on Twitter is going to have posted that. And that, that means that it becomes more of a clearinghouse of news than anything from CNN to, you know, frankly, I'm not, I don't know that Fox is as far, I'm not even sure which one I'm doing here. Like, I think CNN is more ideological than Fox in almost every regard at this point. I can't speak to Fox generally. I can say that there are certain places on Fox where one does tend to hear a perspective, which frankly doesn't strike me as left or right. It strikes me as, um, uh, it runs counter to the official narrative. Um, and is often predictive. Yeah. But, you know, what you say, I, I hate to differ with you already, but what you're saying should be true of Twitter, but mm. part of what we're fighting over is whether or not it will be true, right? Whether or not it's a place where you are allowed to post every perspective. And it hasn't been that way mm. uh, recently. I mean, the number of people who have highly predictive models who've been thrown off of Twitter in recent times is staggering. Right. But that, but that is reversing. Yeah, well, right. it is, and it isn't. Jordan Peterson's back. Babylon B is back. To yep. name, to name, but two. Yep. And then there are a whole bunch that aren't. None of back. those isn't a person, but. Right. So uh, I guess it certainly bears mention that the absurdity of the Doctor Rollergator suspension um, continues for no obvious reason. It's such an absurd, re- you know, for those who don't know it, Doctor Rollergator was a. Um, an account that uh, was satirical, but posted a lot of serious stuff and was suspended. I, I believe the explanation was for encouraging violence. And what it had done was it had suggested that somebody slap somebody across the face with a glove, which is something that is regularly posted on Twitter by other accounts that don't get suspended. And this was nine months ago, at least, and it hasn't been restored. So in any case, it's... Um, Elon, if you're watching, go down in the Twitter dungeons and see if Dr. Rollergator isn't there and consider uh, freeing that account. Um, <clears throat> all right, so let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the various pieces that are in play and build up a model and see whether it goes anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about was we have alleged um, that the blue team which is my term for it because I don't like calling it the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is something that has had uh, an honorable role in history. I just think something's happened to it and it's now, that's now not what the thing is. It's behaving as something very differently and treating it, you know, it it is like the the family dog, sorry, the family dog has gotten rabies, right? And the point is thinking of the family dog once it's got rabies as the family dog is the wrong way to think about it. That that dog is now a serious problem. And so anyway, um, the uh, the idea that the blue team is some um, new type of force is important, and it's something we've discussed, uh, and we will come back to it in a second. I also wanted to bring back up a concept that I heard described very well by Peter Thiel. I don't know if it's his concept originally or not. It was just in a speech that he recently gave. But he talked about there being two um, 
purposes for money. And I thought this was a very useful dichotomy. And the one purpose he described was as a means for exchange, which is to say you have some money and you can uh, use it to buy things. Um, and money still works well in this way. But then there's this other way in which money functions as a store of wealth, especially dollars, the world's reserve currency. Right? And the idea is that a dollar, even though it is a fiat currency that basically has value because we assert that it has value, not because you know a paper dollar doesn't have any intrinsic value, much less a, you know, a, a decimal point on a screen, but nonetheless, because the, of the durability of the United States, its currency is the world's reserve currency and has been so for many, many decades. Um, and so anyway, money functions as a store of wealth, right? One thing you can do if you have wealth is you can put it into dollars and those dollars fluctuate in terms of how much they're worth. But the point is there is some stability to it. And in fact, other countries have sometimes pegged their currencies to the dollar because of that that stable value. And what I'm increasingly realizing is that that second, you would imagine that if that second feature of money were to disintegrate, that it would take the first one with it. And this is less true than you would imagine. This is one of the curious things about the present, is there is every reason to imagine that in fact the store of wealth is failing to function as a store of wealth, um, that there's a great deal of uncertainty about the value of the dollar going forward in large measure because we have basically printed dollars as a way of getting out of crises and that's a very limited um, phenomenon. But the store of wealth is ever more um, suspect and yet we're still using this object as a means of exchange in part because something like crypto never figured out how to be easy to use. Right, crypto was so hard to pay anybody with crypto that um, it crypto worked as a as a store of wealth, but not as an exchange. Yes, exactly, right. as an exchange modality. Modality, yeah. Now the funny thing is, it never really worked all that well as a store of wealth either, because it was so volatile, right? And we have seen, you know, but it worked better in that modality, in 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 your telling of it, in Teal's second modality than in the first. Yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, it never worked as a modality of exchange because in, in part, and this is going to get to the, the uh, FTX part of the story here, in part because in order to use it, you had to go through an exchange to get to dollars and use those for exchange. So it, right. you know, it was at best a redundant and complexifying feature of the environment. Um, okay, but I want to call attention to something that I think I haven't really described here yet, and it's something I suspect is playing a huge, hugely important role in history at the moment. And uh, I'm just going to lay it out, and you, uh, you, you help me get it to clarity. Okay. I'm not, I have not heard this yet. Uh, what I call it the time-traveling money printer. Okay, which I know is not a name that calls anything meaningful to mind yet, but you'll see why in nope. a second. Nope. <laughs> um, Time-traveling money printer. Everybody has gone through the thought exercise of uh, what would you do if you had a time machine, right? Mm -hmm. And almost no matter what your values are, you come up with some version of, well, if I've got a time machine that goes forward, 
I could go and I could look at stock prices a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, figure out what was going to go up and that I could come back in time and buy some of that, figure out what was going to go down. I could short that. And so you could create a big pile of wealth if you had a time machine. Likewise, if you can go backwards in time, you know, you can go buy some Microsoft or Apple when they're nice and cheap and you could become super wealthy by doing this, right? Now, what I'm concerned about is that there is actually a class of elites that now effectively has a time machine. And it doesn't have time travel in the technical sense, but it has another mechanism of doing the same thing. And it has implications, therefore, for the value of something like a dollar. Because if somebody is capable of effectively printing money of their own without risking being arrested for uh, counterfeiting, for example, then the point is they are robbing everybody who holds dollars because there are more dollars in circulation, so every dollar is worth less, mm -hmm. right? So here's my claim. If you have effectively insight on what is going to happen, historically speaking, and you share it, then everybody quickly picks up that insight and the markets will correct for whatever is going to happen, right? They will build that into the price of whatever it is that you're looking at. If, on the other hand, you have information about what's going to happen historically and others don't have it, then you uniquely can position yourselves for the change that is coming, create huge piles of wealth based on what is effectively inside information, and thereby rob everybody else who is using this place to store their own wealth. Mm -hmm. And so let's take one example that I think has become somewhat obvious. There is strong evidence that COVID was circulating long before we in the public became aware. We became aware of it effectively at, you know, at the new year of 2020. Right? Tail end of January was the earliest for almost everyone. Tail end of January was the earliest for, for virtually everyone. So and you're you're a month early already. I, you know, it was it was March before you know, sort of widely understood. Many people were aware in February. Tail end of January is when, for instance, we became aware of it. I think the new year I don't think in the new year more than a handful of Almost doesn't matter yeah. because let's put it this way. Nin if, 2020 you're talking. If you are looking at information in that's public mm -hmm. and you put two and two together and you say there's something circulating and it could affect the world and other people are slow to realize it that's legitimate that's insight that's driving it mm -hmm. on the other hand there's strong evidence that the virus was circulating um, at the wuhan military games in september of 2019 september october i think it was september but it, it doesn't matter the point is long before the public yes. got any warning that there might be something worth paying attention to in this space. Yep. Now, here's the question. Who knew? Right? If nobody knew, if it was circulating and it just didn't dawn on anybody to test for it or figure out that there was a pattern, okay, then we're all in the same place. If, on the other hand, certain people knew what was coming, and instead of sharing that information publicly, what they did was position themselves so that predictable things would cause them to become wealthy. You know, you can short uh, stocks for, let's say, cruise ships, which are going to take a terrible hit, right? I don't know. You know, you, you, you could see some things that would obviously be elevated. Yeah. Um, you might know who had 
you know, viable vaccine technologies that might become quickly relevant. Who's to say? But the point is, if you had inside information in September, October of 2019, that there was a great uh, contagious disease that was going to spread as a, a pandemic, you might well be in a wonderful position to effectively print money. Um, and the key to it is you can't move in time, but you can slow other people down in terms of how quickly they realize what's coming. So that by the time they are saying, hey, maybe cruise ships are going to take a hit, the point is you've already, you've already shorted that stock, right? Mm -hmm. So the basic point is, well, is there a game afoot in which instead of um, trying to read the tea leaves better, instead of using expertise to figure out which things are undervalued and to arbitrage those markets, that instead the game is to delay the dawning of insight on the public and turn them into a never-ending sea of what would, in economic terms, be called greater fools, right? Um, and if that happens, right, if it happens once, then the point is you'll see a fortune created and it will rob everybody else to a small degree. But if it becomes systematic, right, then it raises the question of, well, then what is, what are dollars, mm -hmm. right? If somebody is able to make dollars when they want to by being ahead of everybody else because they know what's coming, why are they ahead of everybody else? Because they slow them down in the recognition of these patterns. And the point is, well, that's not a store of wealth from the point of view of most people. That's a scheme in which some people make great fortunes and others uh, slowly have their wealth drained away. Right. So slowing down the awareness of people can look a lot of, a lot of ways. And I think you're going to go to a couple of these places, but is, is that where you're going next? That's exactly okay. it. This is why I think we are fighting over what kind of place Twitter is going to be, for example, right? So the idea is, if we in the public have a place in which to do some truth-seeking, if universities still function to seek truth, if journalists are still pursuing truth, right, then we have mechanisms that we can use to figure out what's coming too. If we can hobble those institutions, Right, And so the point is, well, there's no, what is the newspaper you would go to to figure out just the basic facts of what's taking place so you could begin to build a model of your own? If we don't have that, because there is no newspaper that isn't uh, a partisan rag at this point, right? If we don't have scientists who will tell us the truth of some uh, important economically relevant field, what we have is people spreading narratives then the point is, well, that creates a landscape in which this game can unfold again and again. And so viewers of Dark Horse will be well familiar with the idea that zero is a special number. And this is really, uh, I'm arguing, this is at least one good reason why zero is so special, is that it creates that um, a landscape in which wealth can be drained away from most people who have stored it in things like dollars to those who have a privileged position um, as a result of the fact that sense-making has now um, become, it has descended into noise. Can I just share one short paragraph sure. right here? Um, I want to share a little bit more later, but uh, this piece that probably, I don't, actually don't know if you've seen it, um, but probably many of our, many of our audience has, by Jeffrey Tucker at the Brownstone Institute called The COVID Crypto Connection, The Grim Saga. Saga. Wow, I just can't read today. 
the COVID crypto connection, the grim saga of FTX and Sam Bankman. Is it freed, freed. or fried? It's freed. Okay, I'm going to start over. Piece published in the Brownstone Institute by Jeffrey Tucker this week, the COVID crypto connection, the grim saga of FTX and Sam Bankman fried uh, one paragraph is, I will tell you, writes Tucker, what infuriates me about these billions in fake money and deep corruptions of politics and science. For years now, my anti-lockdown friends have been hounded for being funded by supposed dark money that simply doesn't exist. Many brave scientists, journalists, attorneys, and others gave up great careers to stand for principle, exposing the damage caused by the lockdowns, and this is how they have been treated, smeared and displaced. This is exactly it. And this is, this is why I'm raising this this week, yep. is that I think what has happened is the FTX scandal has allowed us to glimpse something. And it ain't the first time this has happened either. In fact, I would point people to the Enron situation, right? right? The Enron situation was a jaw-dropping case of fraud, but it was also connected to the red team. Right? Mm -hmm. It was connected to the Bush administration in ways that we never figured out. Mm -hmm. And I believe what happens is you glimpse the tip of the iceberg, and then we cannot help but use the tools from the past to try to assert what the object is. You know, what is FTX? Oh, well, it was obviously a fraudulent exchange in which people put their money in and they thought that that money existed in uh, some place that they could access it, but in fact, inside of FTX, there was no safeguard against them using it personally, against them investing it recklessly, right? Oh my God, it's jaw-dropping, but that ain't the half of it, mm -hmm. right? In fact, I would argue that that's really even the cover story, that in some sense, what you've got is the blue team, which is a racket, has mechanisms for doing things. It has, there's a machine that we cannot see that shapes history. And that machine has mechanisms for shunting large amounts of money into places, right? And if we say, oh, that's money laundering. No, it includes money laundering. But the point is, this is really the shaping of history. It is not in any way an accident, in my opinion, that the FTX scandal seems to touch Ukraine and energy policy, where there is now a war raging, where the Bidens have perverse incentives, where uh, the information that was unearthed about Hunter Biden's laptop was uh, silenced prior to an election, including the censoring of the New York Post, right? In, in other words, there is some engine that knows where its bread is buttered, and it is capable of making things happen, right? It is capable of slowing down the dawning of information about Hunter Biden's laptop, so it does not play a decisive role in the waning days of the 2020 election campaign, for example. Right? I don't. I still don't think we understand why Ukraine shows up as a place that Hunter Biden was making a fortune that made no sense, where his internal emails suggest that Joe Biden is involved, and there is now a war raging, and we have, you know, the president of Ukraine is a hero, but if you scratch the veneer, you discover that's not what's going on there. There's some story that involves Ukraine and energy and the Bidens, which we don't know, 
that involves the blue team and its ability to shape history. So we'll think it's one thing, even though it's something else. There is. I, I agree with you. I don't know that anything is yet revealed on this front. Um, so I feel like it is a, a stronger position and it makes more sense to, to back up and to actually say, what, what is this? What, what, what are we talking about? I don't, I don't feel like, I, I don't think you actually said like, what is, what is this? What is a Sam Bankman-Fried and what is FTX? So like, can we, can we back way sure. up and say that and then talk about the thing that we really do know in this case, which yes, not only do we know more about it because it's something that we talked about and that actually this, we got tentacled by this thing directly. And so, yes, we do know more about it, but um, that's not what we're talking about. It's because it's actually clear. We, there is a connection between the denigration of ivermectin, yes, I said it here on YouTube, um, <clears throat> as a possible treatment and prophylaxis for COVID and FTX and, and Team Blue. Right. Whereas Ukraine, 100 minutes left, I mean, like, uh, probably, actually, right? Like, I, I think, yeah, but we don't know, and that hasn't come out yet. Whereas the funding by FDX of anti-ivermectin research is now known. It's well, laid bare. We, we have to, so I agree with you. We don't know what, what Ukraine is doing in the story. We mm -hmm. don't understand that. What is FTX? There yes. is an official description of what well, FTX let's, let's is. Let's go there. So the official description is that it was a crypto exchange. And those who have used crypto know that effectively you have to, if you want some crypto, right, how do you get some? Well, you have to take dollars and you have to make it into crypto somehow, right? So you have to, you have this electronic wallet and you have to get some crypto into it. You have to buy crypto. And the way you do that is you use an exchange. Now the problem, and this has been clear for those involved in crypto for quite some time, the problem is it isn't obvious what you are getting when you go to a crypto exchange like Coinbase or like FTX mm -hmm. and you use your credit card or you make a bank transfer that gets you some crypto. Do you own particular units of crypto or is this an IOU where you have put money into this thing and as long as it remains solvent, you can take that money out, but that it is vulnerable because there are no particular tokens or fractions of tokens that in fact are yours? It's, it's like the distinction between having a gold bar in your hand and having an IOU for a gold bar, paper metals versus actual metals. Right. And so the problem is that in order to use crypto and in order to get crypto and in order to trade crypto, the exchanges were the best way to do this. Mm -hmm. But the security of that apparatus was, we now know, effectively non-existent, right? Because that money seems to have evaporated out of FTX and was spent in all kinds of crazy ways, including a personal loan to Sam uh, Bankman-Fried for a billion dollars, uh, you know, things that make no sense. Sometimes you need some cash. <laughs> that's true. Um, but so that's the official story of what this is. This is a, an exchange yep. that went bad, that was badly managed. Yeah. But and, you, and, and Enron is exactly the right analogy. Well, Enron is an interesting case because there is one fundamental difference between Enron and what we see at FTX. What's that? Enron existed. It was a company. 
it did things. Ah. It, and then it became a fraud. <laughs> okay. It went, it, it liquidated its business and it went into fraud full time. Yeah. But the point is it had been a business. And one of the things that is truly, Yeah, wasn't there, am I misremembering, wasn't there like, they, they had either a whole building or a bunch of floors on a building and there was like one floor that was where all the fraudulent stuff was taking place and like you don't go there if you don't want to see, or, or was that a different story? No, it's, you, you, I think you have the story uh, not quite exactly okay. right, but... So there was but this, the point is that there was real work going on. There, it, it there was, had been. There had, right. And then increasingly right. the returns yeah. on real work were just so small compared to the yeah. fraud that the fraud took over Enron, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And in fact, Enron started perfecting fraud and it used techniques mm-hmm. where effectively it learned that if you told people under your employ, bring me a profit and I don't care how you do it. If you bring me a profit, I'll make you rich. If you... Uh, fail, I'll fire you. And yeah. so people are innovating all kinds of ways to make a paper profit that isn't a real profit. And the point is they get rewarded because in fact, the higher ups don't want their fingerprints on it. But what they want is a company that looks like it has a tremendous value because of course that can be turned into real wealth in markets, etc. So yeah. Enron was a business that became a fraud. FTX appears to have been, uh, these weren't serious people. When you look at what they were doing on the inside, first of all, they were just flat-out liars, right? And we will get to the um, connection with um, with effective altruism, which is a philosophy. Um, but the basic point was, even at the way in the way that they represented themselves, this was nonsense from the beginning, right? There wasn't a business. This was this was a con, and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. One of the things that is revealed by this is that certain elements of the elite architecture are not ready to just surrender to the idea that this was just a fraud. You know, the New York Times is experimenting with uh, resurrecting Sam Bankman Freed, you know, sure. as the, you know, well intentioned CEO of a company that got out of hand or something like that. But this is really the wrong the wrong way to look at it. You have, a non-serious entity, and in part, it's obvious that this is non-serious because it came out of nowhere, right? Something fueled the belief that this thing was a real entity, so that it skyrocketed out of nowhere into this hugely valuable property that was heralded by people as, you know, deeply insightful and, you know, forging the way, and um, and it was nonsense. So the I don't see uh, rapid ascent as inherently evidence of being fueled from outside sources. No, that, the question is, well, what did they bring to the table that was new that caused them to be so valuable, right? One of a handful of crypto exchanges. I'm, I'm steel manning without, I'm trying to steel man without very much information. I don't really understand what they claim to be doing. I don't know the land of crypto at all, really. Um, but, you know, one of relatively few crypto exchanges and um, frankly, probably one of the only ones um, that was explicitly on the ideological left. Well, I don't know that I don't know if the ideological left much matters. Well, it matters in terms of having been able to attract people, right? I mean, Bankman Fried is now famously on some kind of record. If if we are to believe this, you know, to, to take a step aside for a moment, this this Vox article, right, published by, uh, what's her name? I think it's Kelsey, Kelsey Piper. Piper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, I guess I can't show my screen here, but I can read to you. So what Kelsey Piper does, so Kelsey Piper, who had come to us to get to talk about ivermectin back a year and three months ago or so, something like that. Um, 
uh, also in the effective altruism and rationalist community, right? And a staff writer for Vox. And in this article that she publishes in Vox a couple days ago, uh, she does acknowledge that a grant that they were about to receive that Vox or something like something there was about to receive from either FTX or the Bankman Freed Family Foundation has been, you know, put on hold so that, you know, it's all entangled. And, you know, there's this appearance of transparency now kind of ish, but not really. Um, but what she says she's doing in this piece mostly is basically just screenshotting a DM conversation that she has with Sam Bankman Freed on Twitter on the night of, I think it's November 15th at the point that he's already in the Bahamas. And just a couple things that he says, and these have been well described in places, um, but he says, we play this dumb game, we woke Westerners play, this dumb game we woke Westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths and so everyone likes us. So yeah. there's, there's, there's that. So that, like, I, don't know that what, I don't know what there's that means. I'm saying there's that. There is that is the game that he was playing whereby he got left-leaning investors from Hollywood, from the media, from places who have been taught to be hesitant about crypto because, oh, that's on the right. Those might be Nazis, right? So, you know, crypto seems like this dangerous place because it is somehow um, identified not as with the left, whereas this exchange was. So that's one thing. Well, but that then, makes a prediction which is that the value of FTX arises because left-leaning people were using it as their exchange to access crypto. Yeah. I don't think there's any evidence that the, uh, the flow through FTX was inherently left-leaning. That is the prediction I'm making, and I, and I, and I yeah, I, I predict that that will be true. Um, I don't know that we'll find out, but I guess I guess given all of the big names that are still defending it and are still associated with it are on the left. That's I, I guess I thought. I, I guess I don't think that's a very far out prediction at all. Well, but I actually w think the opposite would be very natural. If mm. this thing was effectively conning people who were left leaning so that they would use it instead of, for example, Coinbase, mm -hmm. then you would imagine that the left would be utterly irate at having been taken for a ride by a clear fraud, somebody who in his public persona was, despite being a billionaire many times over, still driving a Toyota Corolla because he didn't really care for the finer things in life, while at the same time he was, you know, hanging out in the Bahamas in a, you know, $40 million uh, estate, effectively mocking those who believed that he was actually frugal. But it's it's one more of these, you know, what's on the outside of the package is not what's on the inside. And over and over and over again, the the woke left just takes it hook, line, and sinker. Just says, okay, I'm I've, if I'm in a little bit, I'm in all the way. I'm like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep on down that line. Let me just share the other screenshot from this piece that that. Kelsey Piper reports on yeah. um, bef before we go back to what you're talking about. Um, he says, everyone goes around pretending the perception reflects reality. It doesn't. So that's his dismissal of the postmodernism that all of his stuff seems to embrace because he's on, he's in that ideological court. And then he says, some of this decade's greatest heroes will never be known. And some of its most beloved people are basically shams. So, it's possible this isn't what it seems at all, but no one is claiming the guy is dumb. And you know why he would have this conversation with some someone from Vox, you know, as as his entire empire is failing. 
I don't know. But that sounds like a, an admission of recognition of guilt to me. Yeah, it's, it's too dumb to be believed. I mean, the, the guy is in so much trouble that the idea that he is going to speak off the cuff to a reporter and it's just going to turn out to emerge in public, I don't believe Kelsey and I don't believe him. I think that this is an attempt to uh, curry some kind of sympathy. There was going to be absolutely no way to pretend that he had not been, um, you know, hypocritical with respect to his values. But in some, so I, I think that this is um, a, a false flag a, of some sort. It's a false portrayal of what's actually going on. And our interaction with Kelsey Piper and the way she dealt with ivermectin and what we know about how she's uh, interacted with. Um, people we know well over the same topic. Uh, I don't. I don't trust this at all. I, th I think we're supposed to believe that that conversation took place, and he was careless, and she's a little bit ruthless, and this is the internal dialogue. But I think it's bull. Okay. Um, but we also know, you know. So your um, hypothesis and your prediction is that this thing was fueled by the fact that it sounded like it had the right values and therefore became valuable because those people with wealth who held those values were yeah. investing hypothesis in it. is there are a lot of people with wealth on the left who wanted to invest in crypto, but they couldn't bring themselves to because it seemed a little creepy right. or icky or right-leaning or something, and that FTX arrived um, being all vegan or something, and they went there. But we also see little glimpses of circularities uh, inside the funding of FTX, where okay. VCs who have invested in FTX are then invested in by FTX. So the point is something is using this engine. It is sanitizing it. It is infusing it with cash. And that, that I don't know that. That may be true, but that seems unrelated to the first point. Well, my point is, I don't, I think it is a mistake to view this as, you know, an organically ascendant property that brought something to the table that was so valuable that it suddenly was this, you know, billion dollar player. Oh, I, I don't, don't think that's true. I don't think that my hypothesis requires that that is therefore how FTX became the powerhouse that it was. I think that to the degree that it had a lot of investors, a lot of people who were, who were buying on that exchange, that the vast majority of the people who were buying an FTX were, were woke lefties. So you're talking about people who are using it. Yeah. And then there's this other question about why investors bought anything about it because its internal structure didn't make any sense. It okay, was what is, incredibly baroque. They had a org chart that was insane in spite of the fact that it was a very new entity. We can, we see, as you know, I'm a fan of org charts. Yeah. Have, is that, is that it, it, We have seen it, yes. And it's I have not. Baroque. But then there's no um, board of directors and any of the checks that you would expect to be ensuring that the thing was properly run on the inside. Mm. And then, you know, you look at FTX and its partner, uh, Alameda, and you've got a, you know, it's almost a literally incestuous group of people who do not speak like they know what they're talking about. Um, so the point is, it has the sense, it, it is very much like Enron's phony trading floor, right? And yeah, so, and that's, yeah, I, I think that's it. And I think, you know, you know, believe or don't believe the the conversation that Kelsey Piper reports with Sam Bamman Freed, you know, after midnight from the Bahamas a few days ago. Um, but, you know, there, there is in there, 
true or not, <clears throat> a sort of, <clears throat> you know, she's like, didn't you say that, um, that FTX never did X? She's, and he's like, yeah, technically that's true because it immediately went to Alameda and Alameda did X. And yeah, I may have that backwards. Maybe Alameda, I said Alameda never did and that was FTX. Like, I don't remember which way it goes. I don't, I don't know all of the machinations here, but it was that sort of like, yes, well, strictly speaking, literally speaking, what I said was true because I knew that you, no one could ask me the question that they wanted me to answer. That's, that's it, right? Like, you know, I, I can, I can speak, I can speak truth and my conscience is clear if I think that the only thing that I need for a clear conscience is, did I in fact ask the literal question they, did I answer the literal question they asked, given that I created an entire thing behind me that no one can uh, guess at and therefore no one can ask me the right questions about it? Yeah, and that's, until until now. Let's until put it this way: collapses. that's that's a game that always gets played. You right. have to ask exactly the right question, right. Um, uh, or nobody will make even the most basic inference about what you're really trying to ask and give you an answer that actually makes any sense. Yeah. Um, but let's actually get to the ivermectin stuff because I think yeah. this is the place where we've seen the clearest glimpse so far of what this really was. Mm -hmm. um, and let's be careful about what what we actually know. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the interesting fact is that the TOGETHER trial, which was heralded, this, this trial was um, heralded as the largest randomized controlled trial of the effectiveness of ivermectin against COVID uh, ever at the time it was released. Mm -hmm. It was released in a bizarre way where we were given the result, the supposed negation of the utility of ivermectin six months before the paper ever emerged. So we were shown effectively a slide from a talk that claimed that they had tested ivermectin and it didn't work in the largest randomized controlled trial, which we are told erroneously is the gold standard of evidence. But nonetheless, we were told this. And then we had to wait six months to see the paper. So there were all of these headlines that said what the, the result of the randomized controlled trial had been. No ability to check whether the methodology made any sense, whether the trial was in fact underpowered the way pharma typically makes these trials so that um, they will show no efficacy of, efficacy of a competing compound to something that they wish to sell. We couldn't see that. And then the paper mm -hmm. finally emerges and lo and behold, a whole new set of headlines emerges as if there's been some second major randomized controlled trial, but in fact it's the same one. Mm -hmm. The method section is opaque, so even figuring out what they did is uh, ex extremely difficult. I would advise people to look at Alexandros Marinos's mm -hmm. uh, publications on the TOGETHER trial. It's jaw-dropping what they did. It was underpowered. It was underpowered in a way that was utterly systematic and cryptic. You know, in other words, they had a uh, cutoff, among other things, they had a cutoff for uh, weight and so that they increased the dosage with weight, which makes sense, and then they had a cutoff at which they stopped increasing it. So yeah, they didn't have a cutoff for weight of the participants. The participants could be as obese as they needed to be, um, but the dosage... Uh, stopped increasing at some weight of the of the participants in the trial. Right, and so because COVID is serious proportionally to weight, the idea of underdosing people, as, you know, as they get, you know, if you cap the dosage at a per kilogram 
uh, level, and then as people add kilograms, you stop increasing the dosage. You are systematically underdosing people. The heavier they are, the more underdosed they are. That is exactly a cryptic way to say, yeah. oh, the dose was high. It was X per kilogram. Yeah. Um, yeah. The obese people are more likely to have been badly affected by COVID in the first place. The obese people have been underdosed <clears throat> for the possible treatment, and so they are least likely to be positively affected by the treatment. <clears throat> also being, excuse me, the people most likely to have a bad outcome from COVID. Right. So this was not the only way in which the trial was underpowered, but it's one of them. Uh, also, I should point out that the trial promised to release their data and still has not done so. But in any case, you've got this trial. It's hard to follow the science under these circumstances. Yeah, you, you, you can follow the headline is about all you can do. Okay. Um, but in any case, you have this trial appallingly run um, that FTX shows up as a... Actually, Zach, can you show my tweet on this? Uh, yeah, the one you sent me. Yeah. So Zach is going to show a tweet in which I've compiled a, a few screenshots of relevant items here. Um, so can you... Zoom in. Yeah, zoom in on that first one. Well, so the first screenshot that uh, Zach is going to try to zoom in on here is a screenshot on the Together Trials uh, website in which they reveal FTX as a funder. Um, so that this is, is actually the second one. Can we, can we go right? Yep. Yeah. So go back. So, so Twitter is not Twitter is not working very well. Yep. Oh, there you go. There we go. So here it is, funded by FTX. Now let's be very clear. And do we have a date on that? Can you read it, Brett? Uh, Zach. Uh, no date. No date. Okay. The FTX funding of the Together trial arrives late, after the ivermectin arm. Now that does not, this is going to come back, it's interesting, okay? Mm -hmm. So the funding of the TOGETHER trial by FTX is after the ivermectin arm. After it's completed? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, go to the next screenshot. The one I just showed. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Something's working here, by the way. Okay. Here, you can see this is a news release from May 16th, 2022. The FTX Foundation supports the global expansion of the trial of the year award-winning TOGETHER trial. So the TOGETHER trial won something called the trial of the year from the FTX Foundation and was awarded $18 million in funding and purchase commitments. Now, it is not 100% obvious what is going on here. But $18 million is a huge amount of money in the realm can of... You, can you just put that back up for a second, Zach? So I haven't seen this before, and I was just reading. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's it's the Society for Clinical Trials, which is an, ex an existing society that I had never heard of before, has an existing award. So this is not a new, this is not a new award being announced this year. But, this, but the TOGETHER trial wins the Society for Clinical Trials Award this year, and they say um, that they award it based on five key criteria. But do they say what those five key criteria are here? They don't. Okay, that's what I wanted to see. It's not, it's not listed here. I don't know what they are. So we can't know what this is, but we do know that a huge 
payment, $18 million, in fact, flowed to people who had generated a trial that systematically sabotaged ivermectin in a way that was predicted mm-hmm. um, and that turns out to have been the case. We can't see the data, but we can see the methods, and to the extent that we can reverse engineer what they did, mm-hmm. it is exactly what you would do if you wanted to demonstrate that ivermectin didn't work in spite of the fact that it does. Okay, so. Yep. The question is, what role is this playing? Well, the blue team clearly has doubled down a hundred times on the idea that there that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine do not work for COVID. Mm-hmm. They have doubled down on the idea that the right way to address COVID is with the so-called COVID vaccinations. And so what you have is a cabal advancing a story about what does and doesn't work. That story is being sanitized and supported by garbage scientific work that is then rewarded at an extraordinary level by exactly this fraudulent entity Mm -hmm. that we have just discovered has been doing the bidding of the blue team and uh, of the effective altruism movement. And at the point that Vox appears, pretends to appear to be waking up to some of what it has been complicit in. That Kelsey Piper story is number one on the Vox headsite, uh, head, uh, website right now, but number four uh, most popular stories on the Vox website right now when the Kelsey Piper story supposedly revealing the depths of the depravity and awareness of Sam McMahon fried is headlined, Going Home for the Holidays, Boost, Mask, and Test Beforehand. So that's the same. That's the same cabal, pretending that you know I, I, either there's awareness or there isn't, right? Um, if if this is still the stuff being published on Vox at the same moment, there's awareness over here about some of some of the tentacles that are all wrapped up in one another. And if you pull on one, you're going to find something really, really bad inside. You know, what what could be big enough? to wake it all up, to wake up this beast, and to stop having an article recommending that you boost before you go see your family, for instance. Well, one thing, and one of the reasons that I wanted to have this conversation on Dark Horse today, is I think it is really important not to jump to conclusions about what some scandalous entity in front of us is. In other words, I think we missed the boat with Enron. I think we figured out what was going on in the Enron building, but we didn't figure out what role it was playing in civilization. Okay. I think we are in danger of doing the same thing here. That the idea is we will accept something, something, you know, salacious about what was taking place at FTX, and we will wag our fingers at them, and we will fail to understand what its real role in the universe was. So Enron is when? Late 90s? Early aughts? I don't actually remember. You want to look it up quickly, Zach? Uh, yeah. Um, like the Enron collapse or something. Yeah. Um, Google Enron, you'll immediately find um, just sort of when, when, when it all goes to, to hell. Um, I think one of the, this is not then, whatever it was. It's, you know, it's a couple decades. December 2001. 2001. Okay. Uh, so, oh, right after 9-11. Well, according to Wikipedia, so who knows really. But. You know, I, I think Wikipedia isn't wrong about that level of yeah. history yet. Um, we're 21 years later. This is not then, but I know that it felt to those of us who were still 
dedicated Democrats at the time. Like, and you said Enron was a, was a red team failure, right? That was, that yep. was, that appeared to be, and I haven't seen anything that suggests that it was, that it wasn't orchestrated by and perpetuated by and, and, you know, and done, and done by a bunch of people who would have claimed to have been on red, on, on team red, as it were. And there was, I'm sure, a fair bit of smugness and self-satisfactory back, uh, back, Padding. Padding. Backpacking. Backpatting on uh, on the part of, of various Democrats who might have been doing something similar but weren't or weren't discovered doing it. And part of what we're seeing here is, well, of course the other side would do it. And it's 21 years later and they learned some things and there's more technological capacity and it's worse. It's, it's going to take out a whole lot more than Enron did. And can we do something more than having... Team Red be smug, and Team Blue be in denial, which I think is kind of what happened with Enron. Well, Team Red was in denial, and Team Blue was smug, and it's like, okay, great. I think this is, it's worse than that. Sure. The, we have looked at the tip of an iceberg. We don't know what the iceberg is, but we have looked at the tip of the iceberg, and this iceberg is involved in things that the blue team holds dear. Mm -hmm. It is involved in a case that we know well in apparently rewarding people for having run a fantastic randomized controlled trial that was in fact an appalling randomized controlled trial that just so happens to have concluded that a drug that everybody swears doesn't work, they concluded that it didn't work when the trial was set up in a way that would guarantee that outcome. Mm -hmm. So. The obvious question is, in the absence of things like universities, science journals, newspapers, truth-seeking apparatus that works in the public's interest, in the absence of that, in the total vacuum of the ability of some institution to seek truth on our behalf, something is engineering the appearance of X, Y, and Z. In other words, there's a price point. If you want something to be a fact, Ivermectin doesn't work. You want that to be a fact? Mm -hmm. That's going to cost you. It can be a fact, but it's going to cost you, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to cost you 18 million bucks. Well, 18 million bucks, that's a bargain compared to the money that will be made if Ivermectin doesn't work. And uh, it costs a lot more than 18 million bucks. Oh, no doubt. That, that, but, that, that award is a tiny piece of it. I mean, if, if, yeah, if we're going to play that game, there, you know, there's also the purchasing of all sorts of cheap offshore accounts to flood social media with snarky comments about how people advocating for ivermectin are killing people. Right. Right. So, you know, there's the, you know, there's all sorts of little branches of this that each cost some amount of money. Sure. And I don't mean I don't mean to suggest that 18 million bucks is enough to do it. What I mean to suggest is we knew and we said at the time, if somebody wants to go back through those broadcasts, they will find we know that we are facing some incredibly powerful thing. We can feel what it is doing in and around this story. We don't know what it is. We don't know how it works. But that it exists is something that is apparent if you have attempted to sort out the truth of these repurposed drugs, for example. So that thing, it turns out, lived in part at FTX. It lived in part at Vox. It explains the odd behavior. And the thing that people... Prediction, the Atlantic received some FTX-related money. 
well, the question is how deeply are you going to have to dig, and how yeah. does this all work? And I will point out that I have argued that there are a couple different ways that this thing could work. One is it could hire people to write garbagey stories to not put two and two together and advance their argument in the Atlantic or the New York Times or whatever. The other way is that it could basically cultivate freelancers. In other words, one thing that could explain something like the FTX trial is that you've got a bunch of people who understand, huh, power really doesn't want ivermectin to compete with whatever the official uh, treatments are. And so, if you produce a trial that does that, if you figure, if you function like an underling at Enron, where the superiors don't want to know what you're doing, they, what they want you to do is make the company look valuable on paper, mm -hmm. right? If you took that same approach inside of science and you said, well, power seems to want this drug not to work, and so what kind of, what kind of work do you have to do to suggest that? Maybe it will find me and reward me for doing that, right? So the point is that after-the-fact award could be the evolution of a system of you freelance either in journalism or on Twitter, as we've seen a bunch of you know self-appointed uh, fraud uh, seekers on Twitter who are interested in fraud on one side enough that they will invent it where it doesn't exist and mm -hmm. not the least bit interested in fraud coming from the other side. That's a conspicuous fact. Sure. Are those people looking to be rewarded by something and does that thing look like this entity that we've now had a glimpse inside of, right? Is this is the purpose of all of the money flowing into this thing, basically, that it can reward and facilitate things uh, which have a value to, you know, the team that's funding it, right? In other words, laundering doesn't really cover that, right? Mm -hmm. This is something beyond that. Is this an incentivizing engine, right, that is supposed to look like a business to explain why it has all of these resources, yep. but maybe it's something beyond that. Um, I think the last piece of the puzzle we need to talk about is uh, effective altruism, because it shows up in the story. I think a lot of people don't even know what effective altruism is, and it's worth, it's worth connecting that, that piece of it. So effective altruism is like um, the 2.0 version of rationalism. Right, so rationalism was a school of thought that I thought had some promise to it. I never uh, loved it because there's a way in which it, um, I think, you know, it believes it's got a method for being fully rational, and it doesn't understand that ration that yes, in theory, ultimately that's the way it should be. But how you get from quadrant A where you're rational to quadrant B where you're rational when the intervening space is something you don't really understand, you know, you may want to relax the bounds of rationality a little bit because you're, you may ultimately be more rational in the end if you do that, right? Yeah, it assumes too much stasis in both initial conditions and, and what can evolve in the interim. Yeah. That said, you know, it did some things really right, right? It uh, focused on a Bayesian understanding of complex systems, which mm -hmm. uh, is laudable. It is the source, ultimately, of steel manning, which is a great uh, technique that many of us have adopted. Um, so anyway, rationalism, is, there's good and bad, but it was largely good. But at the point that it morphs into effective altruism, wow, is there a bunch to say about what's wrong with that idea. Now, 
There's one thing right with it, I will argue, which is that what we as evolutionists know is that altruism, pure altruism, altruism does not function. It is a self-unstable strategy, right? And that is because something that behaves truly altruistically um, is in a wonderful position to be taken advantage of by something that uh, is not altruistic. So the free riders drive the altruists to extinction. And to the extent that the effective altruists have a point, their point is, well, maybe we can architect around that, right? Maybe there's a way of architecting around it. However, what it effectively becomes is a, uh, a nightmare of a kind that history periodically sees, right? So um, first, it is worth thinking a little bit about utilitarianism, utilitarianism being the philosophy that says we should pursue that which produces the greatest good for the greatest number, which sounds extremely laudable until you start pressure testing it and you realize that there are certain things that it puts you in danger of, right? For example, slavery. What if you have a case in which enslaving people does uh, a large amount of harm to a small number of people, but the, the net good is positive for the society that does the enslaving? Well, utilitarianism would defend it, but that's obviously immoral. So mm -hmm. um, the point is you don't want to embrace utilitarianism at the level of algorithm because it will drive you into some places that we should never go. Effective altruism is even one step more dangerous, right? Because there's a, there's a recursion question, right? There's a question of um, over what scale are you trying to do good? And because ultimately the, the biggest scale and the most long-standing scale are the places where the maximum amount of good can be done, Effectively, it becomes an excuse for anything at a lower scale. And um, the, I mean, the, the correct parallel, I believe, is um, it's like indulgences on steroids, right? Mm. Indulgences having been the, uh, the, what would it be, the program of the Catholic Church that allowed uh, wealthy people to effectively buy the right to commit a sin for money because the amount of good that the church could do with the money uh, was supposed to exceed the harm done by the sin, right? Now that thing resulted in the splitting up of Catholicism and the, the birth of Protestantism um, because it was such a scourge, the idea that wealthy people should be able to buy their, um, you know, the good graces of God through this mechanism is obviously a, an absurdity and a corruption of the church. And the point is, effective altruism has the same flavor, right? And that flavor, it is not really clear. I don't see the connection yet. What's the flavor? Um, let's look at uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. Let's. Okay. Sam Bankman-Fried was a fraud who um, took money from people and uh, did not treat it with the proper care that he should have, either the in investors or the money of people who use the exchange. Sure. But he created a, an entity that was very powerful. 
that is arguably defensible if, you know, what in the end the wealth evaporated. So that's not defensible, but that could just Because be the claim was that the entity was going to do larger good in the world than any individuals were going to be able to do. Right. And this is one of these cases where okay. the um, the loophole is as big as you need it to be. Sure. Any evil at all can be ostensibly justified on the basis that it is necessary to fuel some larger good that will be done later at larger scale, right? And so the basic point is, you want complete freedom from morality? Well, you can get there through effective altruism because it's in yeah. no way bounded, <clears throat> right? So it therefore removes every constraint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. Pay no attention to my actions. My intentions are good, and I've and I'm just I'm gaining power so that I can push all those intentions in the right direction. Yep, they'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Um, and the you know this also raises the question about what they will do as the bankruptcy of that mode is literally literally and figuratively revealed. In other words, um, to what extent is effective altruism? having a, you know, a moment of reflection about what's wrong with what it believes and to what extent is it behind the scenes um, conspiring to keep itself going because it doesn't actually think that anything here has been demonstrated other than some, you know, bad business calls that caused its good thing to blow up. Mm -hmm. um, so, in any case, there are a lot of messages in this whole uh, picture here. One of them has to do with um, do-gooders, right? Mm -hmm. Effective altruism is like a kind of uh, wokeness for, what would I even call them? A wokeness for people who aspire to being intellectuals. Um, and it has all sorts of outgrowths. It's willing to partner apparently with those who would sabotage a good drug in the middle of a pandemic. Um, well, here we get back to your point that you called what time traveling money printer, money printer, right? It's not one thing that you could do is, is create history and know what you're creating and just be ahead of the game because you know what's going to happen because you're making it happen. And another thing that you can do is make sure that the thing that could send you in one direction, like, oh, actually, this is, this is a treatable disease, uh, doesn't get discovered by, you know, funding and favoring and, you know, buying accounts and voices that basically make sure that no one who, you know, you would want to have at a cocktail party would ever think that a horse dewormer could possibly be something you could just treat COVID with. <laughs> Isn't that so funny? So right. funny. So you know, there's a, there's a lot of there are a lot of branches of that of that attack on this one particular drug and on several of them really, and on the individuals like Dr. Corey and you know, so many others who are saying, yeah, actually this is a oh never mind, right? Like I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go I for instance Dr. Corey I'm gonna go and treat people privately and you're gonna keep on chasing me out of my my work and I'm gonna continue to treat people because guess what I'm a doctor. Right, like you know, the, the, many of these people who got chased out of work were actually doctors who really did take an oath, and they meant it, and they care for patients, and they really did save people. And that's not what most of these people who ended up making bank on COVID were. 
And I think, so just the last four paragraphs of this Jeffrey Tucker article in the Brownstone Institute wraps up nicely, I think, a lot of what you're talking about. Okay. This is, again, Tucker, uh, a guy named Jeffrey Tucker, who I think is the, either the founder or the, or, the, or the head of the Brownstone Institute. All this time, while every type of vicious propaganda was unleashed on the world, the pro-lockdown and pro-mandate lobby, including fake scientists and fake studies, were benefiting from millions and billions thrown around by operators of a Ponzi scheme based on cheating, fraud, and $15 billion in leveraged funds that didn't exist, while its principal actors were languishing in a drug-infested $40 million villa in the Bahamas, even as they preened about the virtues of effective altruism and their pandemic planning machinery that has now fallen apart. Then, the New York Times, instead of decrying this criminal conspiracy for what it is, writes puff pieces on the founder on how he let his quick-growing company grow too far, too fast, and now needs mainly rest, bless his heart. The rest of us are left with the bill for this obvious scam that implausibly links crypto and COVID. But just as the money was based on nothing but puffed air, the damage they have wrought on the world is all too real. A lost generation of kids. Declined lifespans, millions missing from the workforce, a calamitous fall in public health, millions of kids in poverty due to supply chain breakages, 19 straight months of falling real incomes, historically high increases in debt, and a dramatic fall in human morale the world over. So yes, we should all be furious and demand full accountability at the very least. Whatever the final truth, it is likely to be far worse than even the egregious facts listed above. It's bad enough that lockdowns wrecked life and liberty. To discover that vast support for them was funded by fraud and fakery is a deeper level of corruption that not even the most cynical among us could have imagined. Well, you're not cynical, but you did imagine it. You, and imagine is the wrong word here. You did, you did, you did see it coming at some level, to, you know, to some degree, and you know, as it was happening, you did predict it. And that's what this time traveling money printer. <laughs> it's a terrible set of words together, <laughs> but this time traveling money printer concept of yours is is getting at. Well, there's one more thing it's getting at. Okay. Unfortunately, this, uh, believe it or not, it gets far worse soon if we are not wise about at least figuring out whether this is going on and getting the, to the bottom of FTX. And I believe that yes. in, in some sense, the game you were about to watch unfold, and I will say, we have predicted the middle ground scramble mm -hmm. with respect to COVID. And we have now seen so many versions of it that, yep. you know, that prediction uh, has done very, very well. This is another prediction like that. What are we about to see? And one thing we are about to I see. I don't know what you're about to say, but I hope you're wrong. Me too. Okay. Oh, God, yes, totally. Let's hope I'm wrong. Okay. The um, prediction is. The prediction is what we are going to see is a very studious and careful investigation designed not to find out what's going on, right? Mm. To limit the damage. And that behind the scenes, I would argue, what is taking place at this moment okay. is um, uh, what is called a Mexican standoff where 14 people are pointing guns at each other in different ways and, you know, the linkages that have been erected during the movie are so complex that who wants to shoot who and then somebody switches, <laughs> right? That thing is happening behind the scenes because yep. the true elites behind schemes like this are not dummies, right? They don't go into these things vulnerable by doing bad stuff and not having a backup plan. So they all have dirt on each other. And so the question is, well, who, who's going onto the bus? And the, some of the people who should go under the bus can't go under the bus because if they go under the bus, then they're going to take other people under the bus. So this we're has watch. a lot more than shades of Jeffrey Epstein. Well, and yeah. uh, don't be surprised if this turns out to be connected to whatever the Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein thing was. Yeah. But 
First thing we're going to see is we're going to see a seemingly hopeful uh, effort to get to the bottom of this story by the powers that be that will in the end amount to what we got with Enron, which was a story limited to a tragic series of somethings that and that one floor that was so alarming, that one trading floor. Yeah. Right. Okay. We're gonna get we're gonna get another version of we're gonna get the blue version of Enron, right? right? And what is really going on will be protected because it has to be, because if it ever came out, wow would the blue thing come tumbling down, right? But Well, you say that, but I, I, I just increasingly don't believe that there's anything that could be so amazingly clear and obvious and reprehensible. Well that, uh, that here's what it is. That it, anything would come tumbling down. Um, you know, the, uh, the World Economic Forum and their embarrassing little... Uh, I mean, not personally. You, you will own nothing and you will be happy. And if you think carefully about what they're saying, yeah. they're not saying we will own nothing and we will be happy. <laughs> they're saying you will own nothing and you will be happy, yeah. more or less, or else, that thing. Mm -hmm. um, here's the problem. This story already has... The FTX story. The FTX story has critically damaged crypto, which was already uh, reeling from a somewhat inexplicable collapse uh, in the last several months. So let's just assume that the collapse of the value of crypto is just a normal correction. But the FTX story has now taken uh, crypto and it has shaken everybody's belief in it. Okay? And it is therefore... Yeah, everyone who never invested in crypto is feeling real smug. Right. Well, maybe they should. But... Um, the problem is that it has kicked open the door for something that appears to have been marching forward anyway of its own accord, which is truly frightening and which most people um, do not really fathom yet, mm. which is a central bank digital currency. Right Now, a central bank digital currency is effectively something that functions like crypto. It has the advantages of being a, a virtual currency, but it has the disadvantages of being a fiat currency, and then it has a bunch of brand new disadvantages, which is that effectively the money can be uh, controlled by those who own the structure. And this threatens to basically erect... It's a, it's a shortcut to social credit scores and, uh, and, and just having... It's, it's loss of freedom in one step. It, it, is, um, it is totalitarianism in an app and a currency. And um, the threat that this poses to the values on which the West is built really could not be overstated. And, you know, many people have seen this. There's a very good discussion of it between Majid Nawaz and Joe Rogan on Majid's uh, last... Yeah, uh, months ago at this point. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's very good and uh, quite predictive. Um, there's also a piece that I'm going to point people to, which I hope they will look at. It's actually it's uh, volume two or episode two of a series. Both of the items in the series are excellent, and I believe we talked about volume one many months ago when it emerged. It's called This Pivotal Moment. And yeah. so volume two is now out. Um, I will tell you, and this will give you a hint of 
what's really going on. This I, thing, can you, I, I have no, what is it about? Like, what's the... It is, it is a, a video, high production values, that lays out the case for the fact that these central bank digital currencies are coming, that okay. they are part of a plan, that they okay. will be used to control behavior, they will effectively uh, be used to reward people and punish them based on whether or not they adhere to the kinds of behaviors that the power structure wants them to adhere to, that it's a social credit score for the West. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in any case, it is well worth a watch. And actually, maybe, Zach, do you want to show us? We've got the beginning of the yeah. intro to volume two here. Good. Yep. In episode one of this series, the case was made that we stand on the threshold of a radical civilizational change in which the nature of freedom in democratic societies, a system we have lived under for centuries, will be transformed beyond recognition. Where we are currently free to live the lives we choose, go where we please and behave as we wish, except where our actions are prohibited in law, under this new system we will only be allowed to do the things that we have been given explicit permission to do. The nature of freedom in democratic societies will thus have become inverted, with our cherished and hard-fought-for freedoms being transformed into mere privileges granted to us for compliance and total unquestioning submission to the edicts of those who control the system. As unlikely as it may sound, the first critical step in this radical transformation was the introduction of vaccine passports, for vaccine passports were just the first internationally coordinated attempt to roll out a digital ID platform that itself is designed to rapidly evolve into a social credit system similar to the one that people live under in China today. In this news... So, um, it's an excellent piece. It lays out the case very well. And I will tell you ominously that what has happened to this piece, it took mm -hmm. off uh, when it was first put onto YouTube uh, over a week ago. And then it hit this phenomenon um, I call molasses, where suddenly the growth of something that is apparently getting people's attention just stops, right? Where it yeah. hits a, the level of viscosity of the system changes. What's more, YouTube seems to have put some sort of a strange limitation on this uh, object that uh, corrals how it is viewed. Um, so anyway, it's not surprising, given what YouTube has done to us, um, to Matt Orfalia, to others, um, it is not surprising that YouTube would do what it could to limit the reach of this piece. I would ask Dark Horse viewers and listeners to watch it, to give it serious consideration. I would suggest going back to episode one as well and checking that one out and um, sharing it, which doesn't mean you have to agree with every element of the case, but I think the case is well worth airing. Mm -hmm. um, and the last thing I'll say is, uh, I believe that what we've said here today, what's laid out in this uh, pivotal moment, episodes one and two, also suggests something very important about what's going on at Twitter. And there's a lot of Everybody seems to think they know what's going on, and lots of people argue, you know, Elon is cynical, and you're all too dumb to see it, and things like this. The death of Twitter was predicted a couple nights ago, where it was supposed to go offline because too many people had walked off the job. Of course, it didn't. Um, in any case, I would Wait, say... Are pe people are walking off the job, or people are being fired? Well, 
Musk gave sure. Musk gave them an ultimatum. Okay. Um, and he basically said he outlined what Twitter 2.0 was going to be, and what it sounded like. You know, I'm obviously not a, a Silicon Valley person, but what it sounded to me like was that what he was trying to do was build a startup in the ashes of Twitter 1.0 to make Twitter 2.0, which, frankly, sounds pretty cool, right? If you could get that kind of burn-the-midnight-oil enthusiasm for building something that the world needs, if you could get that thing inside a well-established entity like Twitter, having gotten rid of all sorts of people who weren't really into it... Yeah, I mean, I I think... uh knowing the university environment a hell of a lot better than that, than the business environment and the Silicon Valley environment, you know, you see, you see these initiatives start up, you know, institutes and initiatives and programs and stuff within school, you know, schools start up within universities and, you know, branches and, and, you know, they, they do, they, they can be exciting and wonderful, but as you and I have been talking about for, for years, and as is well known to smart historians and many others, the skill set and energy associated with uh, with with startup or with you know winning an actual interaction uh, is different from maintaining something that is coherent. That those are very rarely the same skill sets of the same people. Right, they're not. But I mean, that's part of why what he is proposing is exciting. Is that he's not really talking about doing this with the same people who were keeping the lights on at Twitter, that this, you know, one way to... Yeah, but my, you know, my point is not, oh, well, you just need to keep those same people and make it work. Not at all. I think um, in general, and, you know, again, and I've seen intimations that a lot, of the, a lot of the losses in the tech sector right now, the losses of jobs are actually from like HR and, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion teams. Like, good, good, you know, get rid of them. Like, right. these, these, this, this was the part of it that wasn't functioning anyway. Um, but if fundamentally... Um, you know, startup growth, you know, the, the growth moment and the maintenance moment, which is much more than a moment, requires different sets of skills and different kinds of people uh, than trying to, trying to maintain, uh, you know, this thing, this, you know, growth and acceleration and always something different on the horizon forever cannot, you know, that can't be done. It it can't be done. Right. But I don't think that that's what's going on. I think what you're watching is somebody, well, and look, there's multiple interpretations of what's going on, right? Some people are, you know, their point is, look, you're you're looking at a cynical actor and you're just too naive to get it. And maybe that's true, but I, I don't think so. I think if I'm reading the tea leaves of Twitter correctly, what you have is somebody who has made some interesting moves that have gotten rid of a lot of people who weren't on board with what he was trying to do anyway. Mm-hmm. That he has the advantage of, you know, a benevolent dictator of Twitter. And, you know, what people don't, you know, the benevolent dictator sounds like an oxymoron because people believe that absolute power corrupts absolutely which I have always argued is not correct, that what, what power does is it selects for corruption. And so when people end up with huge amounts of power, they tend to be very corrupt. It does not mean that somebody who had power and aspired to something couldn't use it honorably, that they would find themselves corrupted by it. And so, mm-hmm. look, I may be wrong. Maybe I am being naive, but I don't think so. 
I think what's going on is that actually, look, there's lots of stuff I think he's doing wrong, but, and he freely says so. He says, hey, we're going to do a bunch of wrong stuff at Twitter. It's coming. You, you can guarantee it, right? That's part and parcel of what he's up to. But I think what he's doing is something that's evolutionarily wise, which is this is a new evolutionary phase, right? That in effect, he is he's doing something that you and I have talked about might be part of an institution that really worked where it, you know, had to reboot itself rather than corporations that become old and take on, you know, a risk aversion because, you know, because they're so huge, right? Something that was able to bootstrap its way back into that growth phase, maybe periodically, rather than try to continue in the growth phase forever, um, makes a lot of sense. But anyway, my, my point about it here is, is different. It is because zero is a special number, because we have a landscape in which a time-traveling money printer is plausible because we have no mechanism for figuring out what's coming on our own, right? We don't have a newspaper. We don't have a university. We don't have science journals. They're all corrupted. Mm -hmm. Because we have that bad landscape, Twitter becomes a place that actually allows those who have retained their capacity to think and the courage to say what's true out loud and are not participating in the corruption, it gives them a place to air what they've got. And it doesn't mean it's not going to be tremendously noisy, and it doesn't mean there's not going to be really awful stuff on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Undoubtedly there will be. But the question really is, is this guy really trying to create a place that is an exception to the rules that have ruined every other institution? I still have not seen the data point that says that's not what's going on. And to the extent that it is what's going on, um, if we do want to get ahead of whoever it is that runs the, the time-traveling money printer and that has planned a central bank digital currency to keep us all corralled, if we want to get ahead of that, this is the best game in town, right? Mm -hmm. This is our best play. And if it turns out that Musk is cynical, that's a huge problem because we really don't have an alternative. Yeah, I don't see it if there is one. Uh, I get simultaneously uh, immediately tired of talking about Twitter at all and social media at all. And I also recognize that to my enduring surprise, when I am trying to figure out what is happening on some subject, if I duck, duck, go it or Google it, or go to the New York Times, or NPR, or CNN, or WAPO, or Fox, or any you know, in any of the legacy media sites, I get less interesting and reliable news less quickly than I do if I do some relatively careful searches on Twitter, and that's that is a bizarre state to find ourselves in. It it is two things. Right? It is a measure of how dysfunctional all of the things that are supposed to allow you to figure out what's going on are. Mm -hmm. And it is also an indication that Twitter, despite, still doesn't make sense to me. Right? If you proposed Twitter to me, you said, yeah. here's what we're going to do, I would say that's not going to work. Nobody's going to do that. Well, it's also, um, much as you began this this episode by talking about uh, something that Peter Thiel had said at some lecture about money having really two different purposes. 
Twitter has at least two different functions, whether or not, you know, purpose may not be the right word here, but, you know, it, it reads, and I certainly read it before I was on it, before I ever joined it in 2017, as, you know, a, a social media site. This is where you go to, um, to talk about yourself, to share your stuff with the world, to, you know, post things that are interested to you and to find other people who are interested in the same things and to maybe talk back and forth with them. And like, okay, maybe... If, like if that's what you want to do, I guess, and it's going to be valuable to some people. And but this other thing that we're talking about it doing is actually totally distinct. That I find, you know, I, I, because of what we do, we both, I, I, you know, I end up on it and posting things, and to some degree keeping track of how all those things do. And I'm happier in any week when I've never gone on it in that in that form. It just it just is not it's it's not good for consciousness. But in those weeks when I've never posted anything or gone to, you know, or, but I've gone and looked for some, you know, news thing, gone to pursue some news story, I don't react the same way. And it is interesting and it is valuable. And you don't have to get dragged into like the personal side of it, like the social, like, oh, how, how, does, how does this universe view me? Like, no, you can, you can do this, even if you're logged in as yourself, but, you know, better if you're not. Um, but you can you can use this as a an actual media site that's not a social media site, and uh, and that I think I would guess is what Musk is sort of alluding to with regard to the, I, I can't remember exactly what you said he said but basically that this is going to be the you know the the news source that we all use. You said he said something like that. Yeah, he said that I'm trying to remember exactly, but it was something to the effect that Twitter. Um, was doing far better as a mechanism for crowdsourcing information about okay. what's going on than any yep. of the major news sources. And you've said the same thing. I 100% agree. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah. Right? We should be able to have a newspaper. Yeah. But apparently we can't. But I guess it, it will be a tougher sell. I'm still skeptical. And I, you know, and I, I, am, I feel that I am the most skeptical of social media of like anyone I've ever met. And... And I'm on Twitter, and I've done both of these things, and I see how much this is like necessary and sometimes interesting and often a time suck almost entirely. And that this thing is actually, whoa, surprising. Oh, my God, it's actually a good news source. And yet still I find myself going, oh, but it's Twitter. Uh, why are we talking about Twitter, for fuck's sake? Right? So I, I'm, it, it's going to be a tougher sell for people if, you know, if even I don't quite believe it, and I feel like I'm, I, I, should, I should believe it more than anyone, because I have experienced it. Yeah, I guess what I would say is I actually think it's a, um, it's a moment to override your instincts with respect to it, because, you know, I can absolutely see why it deserves to be discounted as a result of the fact that it is social media, and social media is itself um, net negative, and so powerfully so. On the other hand, to the you know, it's a little bit like um, I don't know what would the analogy be, but uh, you know, in 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 the Apollo thirteen situation, right, where you've got astronauts and they're going to die, and there are a certain number of objects on the spacecraft and you have to configure them into a filter that gets over the problem. The point is, okay, I don't know that the people who started Twitter 
had any clue what they were building, and it's certainly a mixed bag, but to the extent that no other property can sustain a truth-seeking mechanism, and Twitter falls into the hands of somebody who looks like they're interested in facilitating that, I guess I would say, you know, we are in no position to be picky about the fact that it's a social media site, because at some level, if the people who remember how to think are going to have to gather somewhere, and nobody else is going to have them, then Twitter it is. I mean, I think I, I, either you're not hearing me or you're talking to everyone else, because I have said, look, I'm, I'm sort of the living realization that although it's also the social media thing, which I don't think is healthy for people, if that is the thing that's necessary, or in this case, in this version of the universe we have come to live in, um, then it is it is paired inextricably with an actual, effectively a, 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 a news. It's not aggregator. an organization. It's it's an aggregator. Yeah. Uh, then then so be it. And you know and 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 yes. Do all do all the actual fact checking, like actual fact checking, not like one of those professional fact checker people do um, on anything you find there, as you would for anything. Um, but do not start with a personal discounting of like, oh well, I found it on Twitter, so I don't know. But like that 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 is an unnecessary discounting that that shouldn't happen at, at the beginning. Of, of having found something on that site as opposed to CNN? Like, really? You're, you're going to prefer the stuff that, that is going to come out of the one of the mainstream sources? I don't think so. All right. Well, I would say one other thing. I think I am a little bit talking to you. I'm also talking to them. And what I'm responding to something that I am seeing, which is we don't know what Musk is up to, right? Mm -hmm. I think most people have not understood the gravity of the situation and the paucity of alternatives. I think if I look at everything Musk has said and tweeted, I think he does understand why Twitter is important. And I think he does know roughly what he's trying to create. And if that's true, then what he should be getting from us is the benefit of the doubt, right? We should be approaching uh, with Let's put it this way. I think part of what is being marshaled against him is an attempt to create an environment in which people that he's trying to help uh, respond by hating him. And I think he's pretty good at ignoring that. I think whether it's autism or whatever it is, that he's actually capable of tuning out that uh, thing that would capture almost anybody else's attention in that spot, and that we would be wise if we agree that we don't have a better plan, and that this plan might be what it appears to be, then in fact we should be trying to help by um, being open to the possibility that it is what it looks like it is. Well, I think I think we need to save this for another conversation yep. because I, I think we're just talking past each other. I don't know what the plan is. I don't know what it appears to be. Like I haven't been paying much attention. So I think you are imagining that everyone else is in your head and going like, oh, well, is this the plan or is this not the plan? It's like, I don't know what the plan is supposed to be. So I'm not saying I don't think the plan is what it is. I'm just saying from, you know, from well before Musk took over Twitter, my sense was, oh, actually, this works as a news aggregator. 
this is not a social media site and a story. This works as a news aggregator. This is much more than what it's advertised as. And it was getting worse at that because of the censorship, because right. uh, so many accounts, um, both people and institutions, are being shut down for saying things that the woke ideologues who are behind the scenes, having been hired to moderate content, were being, you know, were, were saying, no, you can't say that, no, you can't say this. So it was getting less good at that, but it was really good at this thing, which no one was claiming it was good at, and yet that is what it was. So, so I, you know, that that in and of itself is interesting, and uh, and potentially sort of where where media goes, given that apparently you can't trust editors, because all the you know pretty much all of the main um, mainstream media organizations have been toppled by editors hiring. Idiots, I guess. I got that's the wrong word for some of them, but you know, just you know, let a let a bunch of people in the door who then take over and and it's gone. And I guess I mean that does we really do need to finish. And we have a cat here this week, and I promised cats last week, and people really wanted cats this week, so I do want to talk about All right. the story. But I, but this is actually a decent segue to talk very briefly about another thing that I did want to talk about this week, um, which is an editor. <laughs> Emeritus and columnist for the Toronto Sun, Laurie Goldstein, who I've never heard of before, and I may be mispronouncing his last name. Um, hat tip to him uh, for, on Twitter, pointing me to the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario, their COVID-19 facts for physicians. And I can't show my screen with our current setup, so I cannot show you guys this. But on November 18th, which is yesterday, they updated their facts, their, their frequently asked questions for physicians. And I just want to read you a couple of what uh, the... College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario was recommending that doctors say to people, to patients. Question, patients are asking me to write notes supporting a medical exemption from COVID-19 vaccines. What do I need to know? The answer is long and there's a number of paragraphs and here are two paragraphs not contiguous in the original that the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario says that doctors should say to patients who are coming in asking for COVID vaccine exemptions. Quote, Generally speaking, there are very few acceptable medical exemptions to the COVID-19 vaccination. Examples include an allergist immunologist confirmed severe allergy or anaphylactic reaction to a previous dose of a COVID-19 vaccine or to any of its components that cannot be mitigated, or diagnosed episode of myocarditis or pericarditis after receipt of an mRNA vaccine. So that's one. Uh, the other paragraph, not contiguous, it is also important that physicians work with their patients to manage anxieties related to the vaccine and not enable avoidance behavior. For example, for extreme fear of needles, trypanophobia, they usefully give a big word there in case you weren't sure, or other cases of serious concern, responsible use of prescription medications and a referral to psychotherapy may be available options. Overall, physicians have a responsibility to allow their patients to be properly informed about vaccines and not have those anxieties empowered by an exemption. So what if you're afraid of toxins rather than needles? So if you don't want our experimental medical treatment, we're going to either give you a different medical treatment or call you crazy and scared and have you talk to someone about that so you can get uncrazy and unscared and get our experimental medical treatment. Right. It, they have defined out of possibility the fact that your trepidations might be based on the fact that this is dangerous. Right. And this... Remind, remember, is the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario, not a fly-by-night organization, although we can hope that maybe they will. So one more quote from the site. Uh, one, more, one more frequently asked question from the site. Again, updated yesterday. This is not 
months or years ago. This is updated yesterday. I've read about some drugs that might prove beneficial in treating COVID-19. Should I be prescribing these drugs as a precautionary measure? Can I prescribe them for myself or family? No. Many of these drugs have an intended use, and prescribing them as a precautionary measure has or may contribute to drug shortages, compromising care for others. Should these or other drugs prove useful in combating COVID-19, their use will need to be carefully managed to support those who need them the most. So that sort of ties back in with the TOGETHER trial still being promoted as the evidence that, for instance, ivermectin does not work. And really, I wish the TOGETHER trial had some sort of thing we could burn an effigy or like I could bring it out with like a head on a stalk. Like this thing is dead. This is not what it seemed. We know that from so many angles now. And here we have, as of yesterday, mid-November 2022, the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario telling its members how to respond to patients or each other when they say, well, but aren't there some things I could use to treat COVID? No, don't do that. You're going to contribute to drug shortages. Also, we don't know if those work. All right. I need two more minutes before we get to cats because your uh, last bit there has... Go for it. Has closed the, the picture pretty, pretty well. Great. Twitter, like all such experiments, is an evolutionary environment. As the other evolutionary environments succumbed to a kind of control that prevented uh, reality from rising above noise, mm -hmm. it proved an environment in which it was very hard to keep the truth secret. What emerged was absurd censorship to cover that gap. In other words, you've got an evolutionary environment. Initially, it's people talking to each other about they don't know what. Professionals end up there and start effectively fact-checking the world and saying, that's not really true. Here's, here's what's going on. Here's the references. Right? It becomes an environment that surely is not what its inventors had in mind. They have to go great guns on aggressive censorship, throw people off who are highly credentialed, who are in a position to say, that's not true, here's how you know, right? So they're trying to turn it into a noisy environment rather mm -hmm. than a signal-rich environment through heavy-handed censorship. It then falls into other hands, and those other hands, the plan, I think, is to restore its nature so the that... The plan by Musk. Yeah, mm -hmm. is to restore the capacity for sense-making to evolve in this context, mm. which it naturally tends to do, which you're saying you've used it for, right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't think of it as a place to, as a news aggregator or a place to find out what's actually taking place, but no, you can. But I find myself, like, I'll do searches in other places and then go to Twitter and try there. Like, okay, right now I can find it. And so yeah. this, you know, it's like a, a little um, microcosm of sociality in which it's not that its fundamental nature is truth-seeking, but it's a place that is hospitable to those who wish to do truth-seeking. Yes. And so I think that is the plan. And to the extent that that's the plan, I feel like we should all get behind it and vocally so because, because zero is a special number and this mm -hmm. is the only thing that stands between us and zero. All right. And I think we can go full circle because I imagine that the founders of, if not social media, then the internet thought that it was mostly going to be videos of cats. 
And it was for quite some time. Right. So let's talk about cats. A All bit. right. Uh, we have only one cat on, on screen here, and he's kind of sleepy. So he's not going to do a lot of... Uh... Okay, that was, that was not bad. Yeah, on cue. De decent, yeah. Um, but a little too dark for the camera to pick him up super well here. But um, okay, so <clears throat> there's a new piece of research. It's not impressive, but the topic is an interesting one. So uh, I, I didn't want to have spent so much time sort of like leading up to this because it's really not a great paper. <laughs> and there's another paper that it references that's even a worse paper, but that has such a great conclusion. I just, I'm, I'm going to talk us through in both of their cases why the methods are kind of ridiculous. And so we don't know what we know. Like we don't know that we know what they think we know now. Uh, but But still, the topic is basically one of what do any of those kinds of individuals that we speak to who don't have the same linguistic capacity that we do understand of us? And so there is, you know, in, in this area of research, there are various acronyms, of course, because you got to, once you have an area of research, you got to start with creating the acronyms so as to, you know, sort of gatekeep, keep people out. But you have like infant directed speech. Like, how does infant-directed speech di differ from adult-directed speech? I would never let an infant direct a speech. How does dog-directed speech <laughs> differ from adult-directed speech? How does cat-directed speech? These are directed speech? at, then. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and this, there's a lot of research, of course, on infant-directed speech. And, you know, everyone who's been a parent has noticed that they do or do not. Like, we, we didn't modulate our speech nearly as much as most people do when our kids were very, very young. Um, and I think we probably do much more for our, our animals. animals, yes, yeah. for our non-human animals than we did for our, our human animals when they were very young. Uh, and... And yet, we know, for instance, that uh, from historical work, speech directed at companion animals shares aspects of speech directed at infants, specifically, specifically with regard to hyperarticulation, right? Shorter utterances, more repetitions, elevated pitch, and increased pitch variation. Okay, so all of those things you will recognize if you have ever had a baby or a dog or a cat or, you know, even a fish if you're that kind of person, but probably you don't talk to your fish that way. Some people might. Um, but again, hyperarticulation, shorter utterances, more repetitions, elevated pitch, and increased pitch variation. All are things that have been noted as being true facts. <laughs> <laughs> true facts about the companion animal. <laughs> A reference that no one will get except for Toby if he's watching. <laughs> what is that reference to? Uh, Z Frank. Z Frank in a video called True Facts About the Leaves. Oh, there are a lot of True Facts videos. <laughs> it's been a long day already. Okay. Um, so th that those those things that are true of the way that people talk when they're talking to babies in particular and to some degree to companion animals um, has been supported by a lot of actually good research. Um, the research just came out last month in journal uh, Animal Cognition. Uh, it's got three authors, de Mouzon, de Mouzon, Gontier, and Laboucher. They're French. Uh, and it's called Discrimination of Cat-Directed Speech from Human-Directed Speech in a Population of Indoor Companion Cats. So the question is, um, can, can cats distinguish between speech that's directed at them <clears throat> versus speech that is not directed at them? Mm. And this is a question that you feel somewhat strongly about. 
Yes, for the record, <laughs> my position is that cats don't even know their names and anything beyond that is wasted. Okay, but but knowing your name may be a different and like lateral question to do you know you're being spoken to? Okay, and I, okay, I agree right? that there's something interesting here, especially in light of the fact, which I believe is a fact, that uh, domestic cats that are vocal are vocal with their people, but they are not vocal with each other in the absence of people. And, I think, hypothesis, they're not going to be vocal with strangers the same way. They're going to be vocal with their people. They don't do not. a lot of cat calling. <laughs> Sorry. I think, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, also from just past research, which is two more interesting things that I th I didn't pursue all of the different pieces of research and to assess how good they were. Um, but two other results, not from this research that just came out in Animal Cognition last month, are that people raise the pitch of their voices more when talking to puppies than talking to adult dogs. So the, like, I'm talking to a youngin thing gets added to itself when you're talking to a puppy who doesn't yet know versus a dog who kind of does, Okay. And um, also, people modulate their pitch more when talking to dogs than to cats, okay? Mm. As, as if, and this isn't to say necessarily that that's apt, but as if the people at least imagine that the, that the, the dog may be interpreting more accurately than the cat does. That, like, you wouldn't modulate your pitch. Either you would think that the cat can understand you completely, right. which is then you're... you're you got some issues to work out or you don't think the cat's understanding you at all, in which case you don't modulate your pitch really, but you will modulate your pitch for your dog, which you imagine could understand you partially, but not fully, just like you would do if you were talking to a baby. All right. Two, two observations. One, you could interpret that either way, right? You could. Either people, uh, and I don't think this is true, but either people uh, imagine their cats are more comprehending and the dog needs the exaggerated pitch to get it. Yeah. Talking to a cat is more like talking to a 12-year-old, and talking to a dog is more like talking to a 2-year-old. Not so much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, talking to a cat is more like talking to a tree. I was going to say a sponge. <laughs> right. I, I don't, and I don't mean that at right. all. Like, I, I actually, I'm, I, I fall on the other side of this, but... Yeah. Well, look, I, there are a lot of reasons to talk to your animal. Some of them have nothing to do with your animal knowing what you're talking about. Sure, um, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, practice your speech on them sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think giving voice to what they might be thinking is a useful exercise. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, yes. But um, I had another point, and I've now... <laughs> Maddie, do you remember? <laughs> she, yeah. Um, oh, the other thing I was going to say is it doesn't necessarily have anything whatsoever to do with what people think. In fact, to the extent okay. that dogs do get it, and they do, they get a lot of human language. They don't necessarily know what you mean, but they, they interpret a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. To the extent that that's true, they may be, in effect, training you. In other words, to the extent that you exaggerate your meaning when you're talking to your dog, the dog may be more successful at doing what you want it to do. Mm -hmm. And so you would become inadvertently trained to do that. Whereas your cat, because it doesn't do what you want it to do, does not train you to alter your modulation. Oh, I think, well, I think you're conflating two things there. Like, can they, un you know, are they getting you to effectively slow down, slow down and hyperarticulate and all of this in order that they can learn more about how to understand you so that they can do what you want? So there's a, do I understand you and will I do what you want question. And we have to separate those because a cat's not going to do what you want. Right. 
right? But does a cat understand you? That's the that's the question we're trying to tease apart here. And it's it is harder because you can't basically do like a, a like just just run this maze for me. And like a dog might look at you funny, be like, why would I do that? But okay. And a cat's like, no. I'm not, I'm not gonna. Right, it could understand completely what you want, and it, it yeah. would affect its behavior, not at all. Yeah, so, you, so you're gonna need to be a little clever in your design of, of how you can figure out if, um, <clears throat> if your animal is responding to you. And we know from a lot of previous research that yes, uh, infants are responding and learning from adult language the more, the older they get. Dogs are responding to human language too, to a remarkable idea, but uh, to a remarkable degree rather. But what about cats? It hasn't been looked at, in part perhaps because they don't feel like uh, collaborating. And so like, how would you know? So this new paper, uh, again, really small study. Uh, the methods, quote, 19 cats were recruited to the study. Out of them, 16 cats, parentheses, nine males and seven females completed the whole study, end quote. I'm like, what, the other cats have better things to do? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> but, yeah, okay. Okay, so three okay, cats so were like, I don't think so. I don't think so. So it's a tiny little study. It's also, it's indoor cats. They're living with vet students in studio apartments. Okay, so mm. it's really narrow in terms of what kind of cats are being asked to, um, to, to basically respond either to... to Four kinds of speech, I guess it's going to have been. And I, I was paying more attention to the other one, but I think it was um, owner speech to other people, owner speech to directed at cats, stranger speech to other people, like just ambient speech, and stranger speech directed at the cat. So we, you know, the cat is hearing four different kinds of voices, um, two of uh, two different humans, um, one human whom they know well and two different situations of the humans talking, one in which they're just talking not to the cat at all, and one in which they're talking to, um, to the cat. And the only one of those four situations, there was one situation in which the cats responded, and it was, of course, the one in which the owner is talking to the cat. Mm -hmm. And they do show a response. So, okay, small, 16 cats, again, three had something else to do, um, indoor cats, living you know with vet students all of this but they did find um that cats actually responded uh noticeably to owners talking to cats but not in any of the not human voices in any of the other situations interesting if true okay i actually i believe that yeah um so you know, cats so the conclusion, again, small study, is that, hum that cats do discriminate between human speech um, that is ambient and human speech that is directed to them, but only when it's from a person who they know. And, and you know, I'd love to see if, like, you know, if in our situation where our cats have four people who they know really well and other people, um, I, I think absolutely our cats respond to our voices and not to some random person who comes in and is like, hey, kitty. And be like, what? No, I'm not. You got kibble, but, right. Um, but then I also wanted to share a 2002 paper that's really ridiculous in terms of the method. So I have to walk us through that first. But um, because the conclusion is so fantastic, um, I hope it holds up if ever the right study is done. Uh, so what was done is they've got undergraduate psych students interacting with a cat whose real name the psych students don't know. They've been given a fake name so the cat can't respond to its name being used. It's kind of funny, okay. Um, engaging how human speech and also human feelings about cats 
affect how the humans uh, will interact with them. And so they're not, they're just given some like toys, some enrichment stuff. They're t- they can't touch the cat. And so that's also like some cats will be like, yeah, touch me. Like, oh, you, you're not going to touch me. What am I, why am I paying any attention to you? Right. Um, but the study was trying to get at like, what, what is a person's opinion about whether or not they like cats? Does that affect whether or not the cat is interacting with them? And also what kinds of things that people might say to cats gets cats to interact with them. And in this case, it's all strangers. The, the dramatic failing of this study is that they literally used one cat. <laughs> so like they got one cat who's, let me see, um, I can't remember what the cat's actual name is, but the cat was going by whiskers in the study, okay? <laughs> and uh, wait, no, I do have it. I have it highlighted here. Let me see if I can find it. Sorry, guys. Oh, here, here we go. Um, in the methods under feline confederate, a two-year, four-month-old female gray tortoiseshell cat served in the study. She was unfamiliar to all of the participants. Although the cat actually was named Tabitha, she was referred to as Whiskers throughout the study to ensure that her responses were not based on hearing her real name. It was also thought that using a gender-neutral name would help reduce gender-based expectations of the cat's behavior. Okay, that's all fine, <laughs> except like one cat. Right. <laughs> like, like, you can't do this with one cat because cats are singular, cats have personalities. We have no idea if the results of this study are because Whiskers, no, Tabitha, had particular feelings about particular kinds of humans because probably she did. So all of that is to say, I have no idea if this will hold up, but the results of this study were twofold. One is not very surprising. Um, Women who self-report that they like cats are more likely to have cats unknown to them choose to spend time with them. Okay. Whereas men who self-report that they like cats were not better able to attract Tabitha to to them. It's not really cats. It's not. It's not cats. It's not cats at all. Uh, And uh, again, it's you know undergrad. It's undergraduate psych students, right? So you know, it's this very narrow piece of piece of reality. Um, But cats cat or less are I, I see i insist on using the plural because they did too until i went back and carefully read the methods like no it's not a cat's situation <laughs> it's really not but okay cat is less likely to approach strange men whose speech has a high degree of imperatives like come here and don't do that which is to say my <laughs> my conclusion the way that i would phrase that and they didn't is cats avoid strange men who give orders <laughs> And really, shouldn't we all? So cats, cat, Tabitha, (laughs) representing all cats, and I would say maybe should be representing like all mammals, avoid strange men who give orders. And maybe if we all just kind of like started there and went like, okay, let's just figure out if I can know you better before I accept your imperatives to come here and do that, (laughs) then then we could maybe accomplish more in the world. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Um, so that's, that's... that's all I got. <laughs> so should this ever be done with multiple cats? <laughs> more than one Tabitha. More than one Tabitha that you're hoping that result will hold up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, did they, they didn't correct for whether men were more likely to give orders? I mean, they had imperatives being given by both women and, they did. and men. Yeah. Equal levels. Yeah. Okay. I don't think it was equal. You know, they didn't go, they did not, um, they did not tell the human they didn't call them confederates, human participants, human participants in advance, what kinds of ways to interact with, with whiskers. Um, they just let them interact. But there were, um, so what they found, I think, um, and there were also, there were cat owners and non-cat owners among them. There were men and women among them. Um, somehow it was only male participants who data, whose data had to be deleted. We, don't, we aren't told why. 
Um, but uh, there were imperatives uh, that were given by women and the cats, the cat, to not preferentially avoid the women giving orders, just the men, the strange men giving well, orders. Well, that's interesting. I, uh, I admit that in addition to the male-female comparison, I'm also interested in within males, uh, totally. Canadian and not Canadian, you know, because <laughs> I'm imagining that Canadian males are not that great at giving orders, except for Justin Trudeau, mm. who seems to be an exception, though he may be Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're done. <laughs> I think right. that's excellent. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Someone points out that we should take Tabitha's perspective and apply it to Koji as a strange man giving orders. Yes. Oh. So exactly. If yes. we could let, you know, Tabitha may have the wisdom of her generation. Now, this is from 2002. Tabitha is probably, unfortunately, no longer with us. Uh, but I imagine that we could find a Tabitha for 2022 and find uh, that avoiding strange men who give orders is, in fact, not the best way forward, either through a pandemic or not. Mm, that's right. And Especially with all the lockdowns, Tabitha, too, may have grokked that, in fact, taking such orders is really not a good thing. Really not a good idea. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. right. So uh, maybe I would, I imagine that I will go a little bit deeper into the uh, infant-directed speech, dog-directed speech, cat-directed speech literature, and I think there's just not very much in the cat-directed speech literature, hence this being sort of the best that I could find. But um, I, I'm, I'm pleased that I feel, I think that you were already there, but I feel like I've pulled you a little bit towards my position on the question only by being explicit about, like, do cats understand, you know, do, do cats understand that they are being spoken to? when it is by someone whom they know. And, uh, you know, that, that first paper that was better done than this 2002 paper, the, the one that was just published last year, uh, suggested yes, but it was very small. I think that, I think that result will hold up. Well, I, look, I don't have any doubt about this. Actually. Yeah. I mean, you know uh, that I, uh, when I need to find the cat for the feeding, yes. um, that I whistle, and that by whistling prior to <laughs> which, feeding... Which you've never referred to either of the hymns as the cat. The cat. Yeah. Um, but uh, that by whistling before feeding, the whistling then produces the cat because the cat wants to eat. And so it, an inadvertent version of this undoubtedly happens because mm -hmm. a person talking to other people in the environment of the cat does not suggest that food is about to happen. But a person talking to the cat probably precedes the cat getting fed fairly frequently. And so it wouldn't be surprising if the animal had detected that there was something about that kind of speech True. that means I should yeah. hang around the kitchen and... Um, and talking about carne asada does not bring out the cat, but bringing the carne asada out of the refrigerator does bring out the does cat. Does bring out the cat for mm -hmm. many comprehensible reasons. So yes, <laughs> I just don't think the cat has any idea what the hell we're talking about, even when we are talking about the cat. Well, at the moment he's sleeping, so yes, it's, not a fair, it's not a fair question. Um, that is true. Yes. All right. It is, it is finally, we've, we've been on here talking to you guys, at you guys, for a little while, we apologize for. Go on. <laughs> we apologize for all of it. <laughs> uh, not the part that wasn't our fault, though. Uh, we are not going to do a Q&A this week, which means two weeks running. We're not next week. Uh, right now, the question asking period at my uh, my Patreon is open. So so go there if you're a, if you're a patron, eleven dollars or up, or join. Ask a question. Next week we're going to do four count them four live streams. We're going to do live stream one fifty one of Dark Horse uh, on time, and then and we're under budget. 
and under budget. Are we okay, Zach? Okay. Uh, okay. I don't know if it's going to be under budget because I don't. I feel like I'm I'm in charge of the budget, and I'm not sure we're under budget at this point. Right. Um, and the Q and A, we are definitely going to have it. We're going to have three questions from the Discord at the top of the hour next week, and then we're going to address as many of the questions from this week and last week, and some from next week in the Q and A afterwards. That'll be on Saturday after American Thanksgiving next week. I don't know what day that's going to be. November. My uh, 26th, and then on the 27th at 9:45 a.m. Pacific, we are going to do a one-hour, paid ad-free, mostly about products, like holiday gift episode, talking about some stuff that that we like that uh, might also help you with your holiday shopping if you do that sort of thing. It might help you even if you don't do that sort of thing. And then we're going to take a break, and then for patrons of mine only, we're going to be doing our two-hour private Q&A, which is always on the last Sunday of the month at 11 a.m. Pacific. It's a lot of fun. It's small enough that we can watch the chat and interact with people and uh, encourage you to join us there. Although that's going to be a lot of time with us if you watch all of those. <laughs> we'll be tired of us by the end. Hopefully you won't be. For now, anything else you want to say before? All right. Until next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.